Well, this morning, like I said, we're continuing our series on David. This is week three of our series, and and I want to start off by telling you all a story, kind of give you a little bit of, uh, of a story as something that I experienced uh, a number of years ago while I was in college. Following, following high school, I attended Moody Bible Institute, a Bible school in downtown Chicago. And while uh, attending Moody, I was a member of the soccer team for two years. I had kind of grown up playing soccer, played four years in high school, and then thought, oh, why not? You know, so I tried out for the team and, and was a part of the soccer team for two years while we were there. And uh, despite the fact that Moody is in the heart of downtown Chicago, it's not even like in a suburb, it is in the middle of downtown, uh, we had this really nice soccer field. And in fact, when you were playing on the field, you were surrounded by the skyline of the city. It was, it was just a phenomenal place uh, on our campus, and, and it was just a great field. But even though we had this, this great spot to practice, and then we had our games there as well, uh, it, it was common for us to practice or to train off-site or off-campus. And so we as a team would run along the shore of Lake Michigan. If you've ever seen one of the Great Lakes, you know it looks more like an ocean, right? You can't see the other side. It's not a normal-sized lake. And there's this scenic bike path that would go for miles along the shore. And unfortunately, we would run many of those miles, right? And so we spent a lot of time doing that. There's also, uh, we would run to the beach, Yes, there's a beach in Chicago as well. There's multiple beaches. And so we would run to the beach and, and do different sand, uh, sand drills. And uh, that was never fun. Never enjoyed that experience. But we would do some of those things along uh, the beach there right on the water. And then we would run to various parks throughout the city to practice. Just find another field and then kind of hold practice there. So we'd run there and, and, and do something for a little while. And then we'd run back to campus and that would be that. Well, one Saturday morning, my coach planned for us to to run to the, a, per, a particular park, and, and we were going to have a scrimmage, an inter-squad scrimmage. So we were going to get there and then split into two teams, and, and then we began playing, right? And so I'm not sure if it was something that my teammate ate for breakfast this particular morning, or if it was something that I did or said unknowingly, or if it was totally unprovoked and out of nowhere. But my teammate made me his target that day, Right? He made me his target. Now, he was, he was playing forward, which is offense, for all of you non-soccer people, right? So he was playing offense, and I was on defense. And so throughout this particular scrimmage, we were in close contact with one another. And nearly every time I had the ball, right, which wasn't very often just because I was playing defense, so I tried to get it off my feet pretty quick. But every time I had the ball, this particular individual or this teammate, he was close by, he would challenge aggressively, and I have no problem with challenging aggressively, but he would do that very aggressively, over-aggressively, and then he would challenge late, right? Which in any sport, you know that's kind of a no-no, right? You, you don't go in late on someone. And, and I thought, you know what, all right, this happens, we're playing a sport, uh, a late challenge will happen once in a while, and so the first time I, I was like, man, that was kind of late, but, you know, again, it happens, uh, I kind of let it, you know, just brushed it off. But it kept happening. And he continued to challenge well after the ball was gone. And he went up, uh, he went cleats up at my feet and ankles a few times, right? Which is definitely a no-no. And then he accidentally swung his arm one time and slapped me in the middle of the back on a follow-through, as he called it. There was no denying that he was playing dirty. And again, I'm not sure why he was one of my teammates, but it was clear that day he was going to take his frustration out on me. 
Now, being the kind and compassionate, mild-tempered and non-competitive person that I am, I recall responding politely and asking him to stop, right? I'm sure that's how it went down. And after asking him to stop, in the most polite manner possible, of course, uh, he, he continued playing the same way. Now, as you might imagine, I wasn't too thrilled, right? I was a little confused. I didn't know why he was doing what he was doing. I was getting angry because I felt like I didn't deserve this attack. And I was afraid. I was simply afraid that I was going to get hurt because of the way he was playing. Now, as we played, I I did what I could to avoid him. But again, due to our positions on the field, there wasn't much I could do. And so at one point, there was a play where I was defending someone else who had the ball. And while I was completely focused on the player in front of me, I remember completely getting run over by this teammate from behind. It was a total cheap shot. I was completely blindsided, and I went down to the ground hard. Now, perhaps you found yourself in a similar situation at some point. Maybe you found or you've had the unfortunate experience of being the target. You've been on the receiving end of some form of mistreatment. And for whatever reason, someone is out to get you. Now, this scenario can play out in a bunch of different ways. Maybe you have a coworker at your job, and, and they're super standoffish toward you, and, and they try to make your job difficult. Maybe not even overtly, but, you know, they're, they're definitely doing some things. You notice that they're doing some things to make your job difficult. Or you have a boss who's overly critical of you, especially compared to the criticism he gives or the way he treats your coworkers. Perhaps there was a classmate who, who chooses you as the target of their pranks or their jokes. Maybe there's a teacher who made it their mission to make you look foolish in front of your classmates. Perhaps there's a parent or an in-law who loves to highlight your flaws or your shortcomings. Maybe there's a family member who's antagonistic toward you for no reason. Maybe there's someone who belittles you because of your beliefs, your faith. I think what's unfortunate is that most people find themselves in the role of the target at some point in their life. If you haven't been there yet, it's likely that you will. And some have even found themselves in that scenario on multiple occasions. And I would imagine, just because of the amount of us in the room, that some of you are in the middle of a situation like that right now. And whenever we're the target, right, it's most likely that we're going to feel angry. We're probably going to be a little confused. We may even feel isolated, betrayed, abandoned, fearful. The list could go on and on and on. If you were here last week or if you got the chance to hear Pastor Chris's message on the podcast, you know that this is how David has been feeling as a result of all that's been going on in his life. Right? And if you've missed the last few weeks, I'll, I'll try to get you caught up in a second. But in short, David has been in this undesirable position of the target. And so knowing this is something David has faced, and knowing that you and I will most likely encounter a scenario like this as well, the goal this morning is to figure out how we should respond when we're in that type of situation or scenario. And thankfully for us, David has provided a great example for us to follow. 
Now, I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. That's where we're going to be spending the majority of our time this morning. And while you're doing that or navigating there on your, your Bible app, 1 Samuel 24, I want to provide you with a little bit of background or a brief review so that we're all on the same page going in. One of the primary characters in the book of Samuel, or 1 Samuel, is, is a man named Saul. And God chose Saul to serve as the king of Israel. Unfortunately, though, for Saul, he made a few unwise decisions which led God to reject him as king. And so while Saul was still running the show, while he was still king, God had Samuel appoint the man who would be the next king. And so in 1 Samuel 16, we learn that the next king of Israel is going to be David. But David is only a boy at the time, and so his reign doesn't start immediately. Again, he's just a child. In the very next chapter, 1 Samuel 17, it contains one of the most famous Bible stories. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago, David and Goliath. And David, as we know, the shepherd boy, he kills Goliath, this giant. He kills him with a slingshot. David essentially leads the Israelites to victory over the Philistine army. In the next chapter, chapter 18, we learn that Saul was pleased with David at this point. How could he not be? Here's the Saul, the king of Israel. He should really be the one who's kind of leading the charge against the Philistines and against this giant, but David kind of does it. He leads them to victory, and so it says that Saul keeps him close. He didn't let him go home to return to his family. He kind of uh, even adopted him into his own family. And as a result, David and Saul's son, Jonathan, they become best friends. However, Saul's fondness of David wouldn't last very long. You see, in response to Israel's victory over the Philistines, the people were rejoicing and they sang this song, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but I know that tens of thousands is more than thousands, right? And so, to put it mildly, Saul doesn't like that, right? He, he doesn't really like that. He's angered by this song. He becomes jealous of David. And now he even considers David to be a threat to his reign. And so from this point on, things deteriorate quickly. Saul makes multiple attempts to kill David. And with each failed attempt, it seems that Saul's desire to kill David only grows. Ultimately, David is forced to run away in order to save his own life. He felt like this was the only thing that he could le had left to do. It was to run. But even that wasn't enough for Saul. He begins to pursue David, to chase after him. And after chasing him all over the place, Saul gets word that David is at a place called En Gedi, which is a mountainous region containing lots of caves. It's a great place to hide. And so Saul and his 3,000 men go in search of David. And this is where we're going to pick up the story. Follow along as I read 1 Samuel 24, verses 3 and 4. It says, He came, he being Saul, came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. The men said, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Talk about being in a vulnerable position, right? I mean, talk about being in a vulnerable position. Saul is literally caught with his pants around his ankles, right? This is just not the scenario you want to be in. He is a sitting duck, and he's completely unaware of the threat 
And so out of nowhere, an opportunity for David to eliminate his enemy, eliminate this man who has been tormenting him, it's been laid in his lap. Here's a chance for David to end the madness. David's men also recognize the situation to be a prime opportunity to strike. Now, just a quick side note, if you're like, where did David get all these men? I thought he was running away and he was off on his own. Well, while David was on the run, he kind of became this leader of this ragtag, disenfranchised group of men. So at this point, David has about 600 men who are following him, who have joined him, and he's become their leader. Now, to these men, to this group following David, his supporters, it's such a good opportunity that they see it as divinely appointed. I mean, they've got to be thinking, of all the caves in En what are the chances that Saul chooses the one that we're hiding in? And not only that, he comes in alone. He's by himself. This is too good to be true. God must want you, David, to finish what Saul started. I mean, how could there be any other scenario? God's hand has got to be in this. Now, when you begin to consider all that David has been through because of Saul, right? This man is on the run for his life. When you think about all that, I mean, whatever action David decided to take against Saul in that cave would have been justified. I mean, in other words, because of what David has gone through at the hands of Saul, no one would have questioned his actions. Anything that David decided to do to Saul would have been seen as acceptable. I mean, after all, David has done absolutely nothing wrong, yet Saul is trying to kill him. And that, that got me thinking, for us, uh, we were to kind of think about a question, have, have you ever found yourself in a position where the person mistreating you has left themselves vulnerable, meaning you can see a clear path to revenge, you can see a clear path to getting even, or in your mind, bringing you about justice you've been mistreated and and it's clear i know how i can make things right there are times certainly not every time but there are times when the target will have an opportunity to respond in a way that's justifiable right in light of this mistreatment no one would fault them for trying to get even no one would fault them for having an eye for an eye mentality No one's going to fault them for defending themselves and then even going on the offensive. And all of that's going to mean something different or look different in each scenario. For some of us, that may simply mean uh, getting even could be spreading rumors and gossip, just like that person has been doing to you. Or it can mean finding ways to criticize or undermine this other person. It could simply mean treating the other person the same way they're treating you. I mean, you're not going to let someone walk all over you, right? You have to get back at them. Maybe like David, you even have other people in your corner who are encouraging you to take action, to get even, to have this eye-for-an-eye approach. I mean, all of these people love and support you. They see the injustice. They see that what's going on here is not right, and so they're pushing you. Oh, no, this, this is the right thing to do. How, how could you not? You go after Saul. Look at all the things that he's done for you. And sometimes we have people in our corner who are giving us that type of advice. And so what would you do if you had the chance to get even? What would, would you do what's, what's normal and acceptable 
in the eyes of other people? Would you listen to the advice of those who are on your side? Let's see what David does in verse 4 through 7. It says, Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. David doesn't exactly follow the advice of his men, right? I mean, instead of killing him, he cuts off a corner of his robe. I mean, that sounds weird, right? Like, I really got him now. I, I tore his robe. Like, like really? That, that sounds weird to us. But at that time, what we need to understand, the robe of the king had special symbolic significance. Tearing the robe of a king would have been a symbolic gesture of rebellion or the king's fractured rule and reign. And so perhaps for a moment, David begins operating out of anger and fear again. Maybe he wasn't operating with the purest of motives in that moment when he was creeping up. But his actions are followed almost immediately by a sense of guilt. It says he was conscious stricken. You see, despite what Saul has done to him, David still respects God's anointing of Saul as king. And for this reason, he doesn't allow his men to harm Saul. I think there's a couple of amazing lessons for us to learn here in, in this passage that we just talked about, these, these, even these, that, that batch of verses that we just read. The first, the thing is that we need to understand that it's important for us to submit to authority. You see, God is sovereign. He is in control of the major and the minor details. And if we believe that, then we're called to respect those in authority over us, whether they're good leaders or not, because God has allowed them to be in that position. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says this, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authority that exists have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. We're supposed to respect the authority in our lives. We're supposed to submit to the authority in our lives. And not only that, but we're also called to pray for our leaders. 1 Timothy 2, 1-2 says this, I urge then, first of all, that prayers, requests, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We have to submit to authority. The second lesson, though, that to be, to be learned here in this passage is that we need to evaluate the advice we're given. We've got to evaluate the advice. You see, David realizes the advice he receives from his men is simply not honoring to God, even though it would have been considered acceptable by other people. So you and I, we need to make sure that the people we listen to are providing us with sound, wise, biblical counsel. Allow me to give you a couple of examples of, of uh, how that might play out. You see, if your marriage is struggling, you probably shouldn't be listening to those who would recommend divorce as a legitimate option to solve your problems. 
Unfortunately, Aaron and I, we have a friend in college, and they're going through that exact scenario. We even see from a distance that they're surrounding themselves with people who say, hey, divorce is a good idea. And they're separated right now. And I have a hard time not believing it's because of the people that they're hanging out with, the people that they're listening to. If you struggle with finances, you probably shouldn't take advice from people who are broke or in debt, right? And, and this makes sense, but we do these things all the time. Like, oh, this person's in debt, and, and, and they tell me to do this with my money. Well, I must do it, right? I mean, it must be a good idea. But, but we do all these, these things in, in all these different types of scenarios. We have to ask ourselves, is this the person or kind of advice I should be listening to? How does their advice line up with what Scripture says? Jumping back to the story, David knows he has to block out that bad counsel and do the right thing. Now catch this. Not what's fair, not what's acceptable, not what's easy, not what's justifiable. He has to do the right thing. David also knows that he will eventually be the king of Israel because Samuel anointed him for that role in 1 Samuel 16, verse 3. And so by letting Saul go, David ensures that he will become king and it will be orchestrated by God rather than by his own plans and his own maneuvers. In other words, David put his trust and hope in the Lord rather than himself. And that was the message Pastor Chris drove home in week one. In you, Lord, I put my trust and I hope in you all day long. So how should we respond when we're being mistreated? What should we do when an opportunity to get even comes along? You see, our ability to do the right thing, the thing that honors God, is based on our trust in Him. So we have to ask, do, do we trust in Him? Do we trust in Him and His plans for us? Or will we allow our anger, our fear, our isolation to drive us to do what's normal and acceptable? Now, in my opinion, this would be a great place to end the chapter. See, Saul is unaware of David's location, and David survives another day. That's good news. Saul walks out of the cave unharmed, and considering what we just talked about, that's good news. And more importantly, David's trust in God leads him to do the right thing, even though he's been mis mistreated. And in light of all that what David has, uh, Saul has done to David, it's amazing that he even resisted the temptation to attack this is really good news. And so if chapter 24 ends in verse 7, we're left with this great example to follow. I mean, really, what more could you want or expect out of this scenario? And when we're being mistreated, or when we're the target, this is often where we stop as well. We think, well, I didn't do or say what I really wanted to do or say or what others were telling me to do or say. I didn't do what would have been justifiable. That's really great news. I mean, after all, it's hard to restrain yourself in this type of scenario. Resisting the temptation to get even isn't easy. And so whenever we're able to do that, we chalk it up as a win. I didn't do, or I did the right thing. I took the high road. That's a wrap. I mean, what more could you expect from a person in that scenario? Well, the next few verses takes it to another level. I want to read verse 8 for you. 
It says, Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. That's crazy, right? That is crazy. When you think about this scenario, by coming out of the cave, David takes a huge risk in an effort to reconcile with Saul. He's already resisted the temptation to attack. Most everyone would say, David has already done enough in this scenario. But now he makes another surprising move, especially when you consider there's nothing stopping Saul and his 3,000 men from turning back to attack David and his 600 followers. That's, that's insane. Don't miss this point right here. See, David uses an opportunity to take revenge, and he turns it into an opportunity for reconciliation. See, in an effort to end this whole ordeal, David calls out to Saul, and we see that in the next few verses, 9 through 13. And when he's talking to Saul in that moment, he's able to communicate a few things. David demonstrates that he is not an enemy, but rather a faithful subject of Saul. He demonstrates his compassion and mercy and respect by not taking advantage of Saul when he's most vulnerable. And he reveals that he has no intention to harm Saul. Rather, David will trust God with the outcome. You see, David's actions here don't guarantee reconciliation. They don't. We can acknowledge that. But they make reconciliation possible. His actions open the door for what would have been impossible up till that point. And thankfully, Saul responds favorably. Check out what he says in verses 16 through 20. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said, for you have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You just, or excuse me, you have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will will be established in your hands. See, in his response, Saul recognizes David as righteous, not as an enemy. Saul recognizes that David will become king of Israel. And in verse 22, we learn that Saul goes home. Now, it's not like Saul and David become best friends at this point. In fact, if you continue reading 1 Samuel, you'll see that their conflict isn't fully resolved. However, David's actions produce some relief. And if David doesn't come out of the cave to address Saul, nothing changes. Nothing would change about this scenario. Saul's pursuit to kill David would only continue, and David would continually be on the run. See, oftentimes you and I don't take the risk for reconciliation because of fear. But when we take action and trust God with the outcome, amazing things can happen. Unexpected things can happen. However, someone must be willing to take the risk. 
someone must be willing to take the first step. And I get it, unfortunately, you know, we're not always quick to take the first step, especially when we've been mistreated. I mean, we say, I I won't get even, but I'm not going to try to make things right. Or they started it. They should be the ones who are coming to me to apologize. I'm the one that's getting the short end of the stick here. They're mistreating me. They should be coming to me to apologize. And that sort of approach, that mentality, it's normal. It's understandable, and it's even acceptable in our society. However, when that's our approach, it's also a missed opportunity to be different and to show the love of Christ. You see, perhaps you've been at odds with someone for a while, and maybe you've been mistreated by someone, and, and you're the target. Could it be, though, that God is calling you to go beyond what's normal and take a risk for reconciliation? And I get it. There's always going to be reasons not to take the risk. I mean, we could even ask of this passage, well, what if Saul would have responded differently? They're in big trouble then. David and his men are in big trouble. Or what if the person that I'm at odds with doesn't respond well? And these are fair questions, but they're also fear-filled questions. We're not trusting God with the outcome in that moment. We're we're concerned about what is going to happen. And that fear isn't going to go away, but that shouldn't prevent us from doing what we need to do. We need to do what's right. We need to trust God with the results. And we can only be responsible for our actions, not theirs. And so we got to take the risk. Because we know it will bring glory to God, no matter how the other person responds. And certainly what we're talking about today isn't easy to put into action. But no one ever said that Christianity is supposed to be a walk in the park, right? As followers of Jesus, we're not called to live a life of ease and comfort. We're called to live a life of faith and obedience. You may be wondering, well, Derek, how did you respond when you got blindsided and completely taken out and and knocked to the ground during practice? Did you respond in the way that would have been normal and acceptable and justified? Or did you respond by following David's example here in this passage? I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) Suffice it to say, I know from experience this stuff is easier said than done. I definitely need help to live in a way that's pleasing to God. So as we close, simply allow me to pray that we'll all have the faith and courage and strength needed to respond in a way that glorifies God whenever we're mistreated. Let's pray. 